Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Brew Strong is brought to you by Blickman Engineering, home of the Riptide. Visit them online at BlickmanEngineering.com. Time for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think, Jamil Zainashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy, hey, my Bruin brothers and sisters. Greetings, cretins. Uh, back again. It seems like a long time since we did a show. Could be. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I, ages. Time flies. Mm-hmm. Time flies when you're having fun. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Fruit flies like a banana. <laughs> Fruit flies like a banana. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, I've been having fun with our, we, we got ourselves in a, uh, a five barrel little uh pilot brew plant. Oh nice. Who made it? NFE out in China. Oh, okay. Uh you know, we just needed something uh we thought uh would do the job and it's it's actually fantastic. They, they did an amazing job with it. I'm just cool. surprised <laughs> at the, the quality of the uh of the build and the features. For the price we pay, I mean, there's you know something to be said. Yep. Um, yeah, we just needed something something basic to get going, and uh, uh, we're just doing a lot of fun little things, kind of yeah. hammering out some uh, interesting beers and playing around with you know when uh, some new hop comes out or some new ingredient or some new technique comes out. I'm just like, all right, let's just do it on the five, see what happens. And then, yeah, five barrels is nothing for the tap room to kind of go through. So, yeah, I'd l- I, I should come up and brew on that sometime. It'd be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Come on up. Uh, our, our guest today, uh, Fal Allen and I, we talked about doing a uh, collab one of these times and we just yeah. never have. Let's do that. We should. We could, we could do it here. We could do it at your place. I don't care. What Either we like to do home. is do one at your place and do one at our place. So we get uh-huh. two different brews uh, and we get to visit each other's breweries, which is always great. Right. And then we don't have to have our distributors fight over who's going to carry what. Mm-hmm. We just sell our version of the beer to our distributors and you sell your version of the beer right. to your distributors. And it's also kind of cool to see the differences between you know, right, right. brewing systems. We just did one of those with uh, Sudworks, and I'm really interested to try theirs. Mm-hmm. What yeah, style was that? We made a double IPA. I know you're shocked. Um, Is that a new style? I haven't heard of that before. <laughs> you know, they're not very popular in America. Right. And we sold out of it immediately before it was even finished fermenting it. 
<laughs> and we did we did 80 barrels. Wow. So, yeah, I was kind of surprised. We're actually going to do another batch of it. Um, and it, you know, I have to say, it's pretty delicious. There you go. What hops did you use? Uh, the New Zealand hop, uh, Rakua, Rakau. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. No, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, although I should since uh, I'm from Polynesia and my sister lives in Auckland. Um, we use that trident and one other oh idaho seven those three mm -hmm. yep okay that's an interesting combination yeah we put a little apricot in the very end and again i didn't want it to taste like apricot so mm -hmm. we kept the the amount pretty low it's a supporting player underneath and it's just enough that you're gonna like taste it and think oh that's a really interesting hop flavor but it's, hmm. it's fruit. So that was kind of fun. You know who else uh, enjoys a good fruit? Ah, our good friend, John Blickman. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's, he is quite a, a fan of uh, fruit. Bananas. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just like a fruit fly. He enjoys yeah. a good banana. <laughs> <laughs> right He's, he, and he, you know what else he bananas for? Brewing equipment and making making your day easier, brewing day easier. That's right. Innovating your brew day. He is uh, an engineering genius, and uh, he won't say that, but he's that guy is pretty damn clever, and uh, he's always looking to improve uh, the way things work and make make life better through engineering. So, uh, and I think he succeeds, especially in the brewing world. Uh, I have never been to his house, but I imagine there's all sorts of weird things engineered to solve all sorts of problems around the house. You know, everything from, oh, yeah. uh, you know, peeling your banana to, uh, you know, uh, he's a wonderful guy and, uh, he has been paying for the show for 15 years in order for to give you all this content for free. It's a massive amount of content and, uh, he's, he's paid for all of it. So. Uh, the least you can do is send him a nice email, uh, feedback at BlickmanEngineering.com. The guy's name is John Blickman, and uh, he's just been a great friend to us for, for all these years. So uh, show him some love. So uh, we just did the, uh, the, the show about Goza with, with Fal, and we thought since uh, he is a pretty much knows a ton about brewing and every subject he's, he's worked in breweries around the world. Uh, you were in, uh, Singapore. You had, you were working at a brewery in Singapore at one point. Yeah. I worked for a brewery called Archipelago in Singapore for about five years. They were, a a spinoff of, uh, Asia Pacific brewing who owns about 40 large breweries throughout Asia. Uh, their most notable brand is tiger beer. Um, so they wanted to start craft brewing and uh, they needed to have somebody who had a kind of an unusual skill set who had designed and installed breweries as well as brewed the beer, uh, designed and brewed the beer as well, who had s some media uh, experience because they wanted that person to then kind of be the, the face, the ambassador of uh, the brewery for a couple of years. So, I was uh, fortunate enough to have all those uh, skills and certainly not the best, but you know, the people that were the best were already working somewhere. Um, I happened to be unemployed. 
And uh, I got to go to, to Singapore for five years. It was fantastic. Singapore is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. We had yeah. a really good time there a few years ago. Yeah. The three of us. Yeah. Yeah. You Great introduced place. us to durian. The fruit. Yeah. Yes. And Being a who fruit. doesn't like durian? <laughs> there are some people. Yeah. Um, all right. Q&A. John, you, you said you had uh, questions relating to barrel aging. Well, no, I said that was something we could talk about. Um, okay. Okay. I'm currently trying to figure out how to re pull up um, the comments section on Facebook to see if anything's come in. Okay. Well, I've got some questions here. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> and I think this is an interesting one. This came up recently uh, in my own brewery. Uh, Rod asks, I boil outside in Wisconsin where the temperature, humidity, and wind can vary dramatically during the year. So the amount of water I boil off can also vary. Rather than living with whatever OG I happen to end up with after the boil, uh, would it be okay to try and adjust it by adding additional water during the boil as necessary? If so, how late in the boil is okay to add water? I think you want to boil all your water. You don't want to add it at the end of the boil, you know, to adjust there, although you can. I think it's best to boil the entire, you know, portion. Uh, but having said that, you don't need to boil it the entire time. So even if you boil it for five minutes, I think, you you know, you're probably going to be okay. Mm -hmm. um, I would say the, um, if you're adding a big amount of water to get, you know, to make an adjustment, you need to boil longer. But most adjustments are going to be pretty small and you boil for five minutes, you should be fine. So taking a gravity 10 minutes out and then making your adjustment, I would think would be, you know, okay. I don't see no downside. Yeah, I think, I think in general, there's, there's, you know, a couple of reasons why people add water. And one is that, yeah, the evaporation uh, is changing. You get a lot of wind on a dry day. Um, and it's warm, you're just blowing through a lot of moisture coming off of your kettle. And so you started at the correct gravity, pre-boil gravity. And as you're boiling, you're just boiling a little, you're getting a little bit too much evaporation. Adding water back really is, is going to have very little impact. Um, if you really went to, you know, where's some ridiculous amount where you're getting a super concentrated boil, that can affect some of the compounds, the proteins and things like that. Uh, so you don't really want that, but I, I doubt we're talking about that. We're probably talking about, you know, oh, it's varying from I targeted 4% evaporation and I'm getting 10. No problem at all. You can add the water back. Like Fal's saying, you want to make sure the water, you know, is sanitary and, you know, gets a chance to, to boil uh, completely. But other than that, you should be fine. Now, here's the second possibility is you've overshot your uh your starting gravity your boil pre-boil gravity and it's much higher than than it should be and you're watering it down for that reason the only problem with that is you tend to thin out uh some of the uh you know specialty malt character when you do that and that's the problem with that that kind of watering down um so you know, as long as you're starting with the correct pre-boil gravity, um, it's, it's not really a problem. But if you're using this as a crutch to adjust 
you know, too high a pre-boil, um, it can water out your, your specialty malts. So just be careful of that. In the future, you want to kind of adjust uh, down on your, your base malt or whatever so you're not uh, diluting those specialty malts. See, I've got long-winded answers for all questions. That's, you should, my wife knows not to ask me a question because it, it just gets, gets that way. All right, let's take a short break. We'll, <laughs> and we'll be back right over this with more of your questions. Are you looking for a simple brewing system that's great for all grain brewing, but everything on the market seems to be full of compromises? Blickman Engineering has the answer. The Blickman Brew Easy All Grain Brewing System. The Brew Easy is a complete system with easy upgrades and a beautiful compact design, perfect for any size brewing location. At its core, the Brew Easy is built on two gorgeous Blickman Boilermaker brew kettles, a high temperature March pump, and either a top tier gas burner or the new boil coil electric heater. The Brew Easy adapter lid allows the pots to stack on top of each other, forming an efficient, strong, and compact brewing setup that comes in 5, 10, and 20-gallon batch sizes. Upgrade your BrewEasy system with full automated control by adding a Blickman Tower of Power temp controller and make moving around easy with the Blickman Kettle Cart. The BrewEasy is modular. If you already own a Boilermaker kettle, you can build your BrewEasy by purchasing just the modules you need. The new BrewEasy all-grain brewing system. See it today at BlickmanEngineering.com and brew with Blickman quality on your new BrewEasy. Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. We're uh, doing live Q&A with our good friend Fal Allen from uh, Anderson Valley Brewing Company. Um, if you ever get a chance... I highly recommend going out and checking, uh, checking out uh, Anderson Valley Brewing Company out uh, in the lovely uh, valley out there. It's an experience. Uh, they have their own language. They've got, uh, you know. It's a real thing. You know, when we tell people about Bootling, most people think we're lying, that we've made it up as some sort of marketing ploy. <laughs> but it's, it's, you know, there are three recognized American lingos, uh, in this country, and they are Hawaiian Pidgin English, uh, oh. Creole, mm-hmm. Cajun, and uh, Boontling. And Boontling is so unique that they used it as a code language uh, during World War One, like they used Navajo during World War Two. Mm-hmm. Oh, We've heard of the Wind Talkers. Uh, I'm not sure what they called the Boontling folks, but it was probably Dirt Talkers. If, if there's another, if there's another war, I think they just take the people from Boston. And, and, and use them. Uh, it'll be Boston talking for uh, for. Uh, <laughs> I love Boston. Go and park the car. <laughs> right. I and I will tell you. I make fun, but of all the cities in the United States, Boston is my favorite. It is an amazing place. I, I you know, uh, there's a lot of great cities in, in the United States, but I put Boston up there with like London and I love London. I think London's amazing. I think Boston is just every bit as amazing. If you ever get a chance to get out to Boston, that is, that is really cool. And uh, really a fantastic visit. If you ever get a chance, I would highly recommend. Yeah. Cambridge Brewing Company is there. Always worth a good visit. Let's see. Uh, all right. 
Travis has a long-winded question here. Uh, Travis asks, hey, guys, I have a question about overpitching yeast. I know that overpitching can result from its own host of off flavors and even, even uh, under attenuation. My question is, how far over the correct pitching rate do you generally need to go in order to run into problems associated with overpitching? I brewed an English style barley wine a couple of weeks ago. I was shooting for an OG somewhere around uh, 1.100, uh, but due to various reasons, I ended up with a gravity of only 1.086. I had grown up a pitch of yeast, WLP007, for a wort with a gravity of a little over 1.1, and I went ahead and pitched all the yeast, even though the gravity ended up far short of 1.1. I pitched at 65 degrees Fahrenheit. And I oxygenated with one of those hardware store red CO2 cylinders to the stainless centered stone, uh, blah, blah, blah. Fermentation at 68 degrees Fahrenheit took off extremely vigorously, less than 12 hours. Uh, seemed to finish in less than a week. Current gravity held stable at 1.024 a few, for a few days now. Beer tastes overly sweet. I feel like I did everything right for proper fermentation of a big beer and still got what tastes like an under attenuated beer. I really wish I had done a fast ferment test. I wonder if I'm pitched too much yeast. I can't imagine that I did, but it's the only thing I can think of right now. Let's see here. Interesting. Uh, total work boil time was three hours. Oh, seven, 98% pale ale malt and 2% acid malt. You know, he probably didn't overpitch. That's probably not the problem because right. most of the time you have to pretty substantially overpitch, like more than 25% over, like 30 or 50% more Double. than you might. Yeah. So right. I don't think overpitching was his issue. I, if it was me, my guess would be either that the, you know, he didn't talk about uh, fermentation temperature, but either the ferment got cool and that stalled the yeast out, which is pretty common problem. Or a more common problem with homebrewers is he didn't give enough oxygen to the yeast. And with a big beer like that, sometimes you got to feed them halfway through with a little more O2, you know, rouse it from the bottom to get the, the yeast back into suspension and a little more O2. So that would be my guess. And at, at, at you know, 1024, there's not a lot you can do at that point. You could try oxygenating it again, but that that probably won't help much, and it'll you run the risk of having an oxidized beer. Right. Uh, yeah. I and anytime uh, a beer gets over or work gets over uh, 1080, I tend to uh, my rule is add O2 a second time. So yeah. he did two minutes of O2 through a centered stone. Um, to start with. So that's pretty good. Um, let's see, but that is for 10 gallons, uh, 11 gallons, but, uh, it was in two different containers. So I, I assume he did each one for two minutes, but what I would do is about, uh, eight to 12 hours later, I would hit it with a second dose of oxygen because the yeast has pretty much taken it up at that point, the initial oxygen that you had and done some growth and you hit them with another dose. Um, it'll lag the ferment a little bit when you do that because the yeast will stop to pick up the oxygen. Uh, mm -hmm. but you'll 
you'll get stronger yeast, better, uh, you know, uh, better membranes on them. They, they produce more of the sterols that, that they need. And so you will, they'll, they'll ferment that out. No problem. Uh, a forced ferment is a good idea. Um, if you had done that, maybe, you know, you know, one of the things three hours of boiling, oh, that was a very simple grist. So I wouldn't think that you'd have problems uh, with that. Um, he gives his starter uh, information and that all seems fine. Um, yeah, I don't think it was over pitching uh, not at all, you know. Uh, I think that's fine. And, and like we're saying, I, I did some tests on overpitching way back in the day and it took at least double the amount of yeast that you would normally use. Um, so instead of like, uh, you know, uh, a million per, per, per plato per mill, uh, you know, you're talking two and even then the issues are subtle. I think I, I did one like about four four or five and just to see what would happen. And, um, it just seemed kind of a bit dull and lifeless. You know, I, I didn't get any of kind of the yeast character and, uh, it just seemed like, you know, so it takes a lot to really impact it. You know, it seems to be very you know, resistant. I mean, the, the issue is just doing too little. Uh, more than it is doing too much. Um, so I would always err on the side of a little, little too much. Okay. He also doesn't talk about uh, his yeast viability. So sometimes yeah. you can pitch a lot of yeast, but if it's only 50% viable or mm -hmm. even 80% viable, isn't really a good number. Um, what you really want is a viability above 90%. Um, right. So that, that can have a dramatic effect where you think you're over pitching. Mm -hmm. But really, if you're getting seventy percent viability, then maybe not pitching enough. Right. Uh, he was saying he took two vials of WLP07. They were less than a month old and were grown up separately, one for each carboy, in two 1.5 liter steps. The first mm -hmm. 1.5 liter starter was allowed to ferment out completely on a stir plate and then crashed overnight in the fridge before decaying off the spent wort and adding another 1.5 liter of starter wort and stirring again. The starter was pitched while actively fermenting about 12 hours later. He seems like he's doing everything right. So, you know, what was the issue here? Um, you know, it might be, yeah, mash temp 149 to 150 for 90 minutes. Uh, water seems fine. Oh, two gallons of the pre-boiled wort was reduced down to approximately one quart and then added back to the kettle and then three hour boil time. So I'm wondering if, you know, he developed a lot of, you know, unfermentable uh, dextrins. Yeah. Through that process. We just sent that much. Right. Yeah. That's a lot. But uh, still 1024. Yeah. Hard to say. Hard to say. Travis, hopefully that helps. Uh, hopefully that was, useful information. Here's another starter one. So I'll save that for another time. Okay. I got a, I got a question for Fal. Okay. Have you ever done a durian goza, Fal? <laughs> we never did a durian goza, but we did do a durian pale ale when I was in Singapore. Oh, really? 
Yeah, we had a, a guy, he owned a couple bars and he loved durian. He was European guy uh, and he wanted us to make a durian beer for his birthday. And, you know, you know we're, we're pretty good friends. So I said, sure, why not? Um, so we made him a five gallon, you know, we took some of our pail and, you know, blended up some durian and added it to it at the end of fermentation, let her, you know, finish out and then carbonated and kegged it. And uh, I thought it was fantastic. You know, I like durian and he loved it. He was just crazy about it. He took it to his birthday party. I think we took two five gallon, you know, 50, uh, 20 liter kegs and served it. And it was pretty much, you had, you know, two schools there, people who loved it and people who just hated it. Um, <laughs> and that's how it is with durian. No, you know, usually it's only 10% of the people love it and everybody else hates it. But uh, it was, it was, it was pretty stinky beer. Yeah. Would you characterize it as dank or uh, how, how does the, I mean, so many people don't know really what durian tastes and smells like. Well, durian is this crazy, hard, spiky fruit that literally one or two people every year in Southeast Asia die from a durian fruit falling on their head. Um, they weigh about as much as coconuts. They're about the same size, but they're really spiky. And they're so spiky when, when a vendor cuts it open at a stall in, in Singapore, they have to wear these you know, gloves that, so they don't bleed to death. Um, but once you cut it open, uh, there's this really custardy-like fruit inside. And it has a, an aroma somewhere between blue cheese and onions and rotting fruit. And I think each person kind of perceives it uh, differently. Um, some people love it. And, and, and most people just can't, they can't get to it. Uh, I think there's a guy that does the food show, Zimmerman. Oh, yeah. Uh, and who will, he says he'll eat anything. He actually threw up eating a piece of durian. <laughs> nice. Nice. There you go. Uh, Chris asks, gurus, at kegging my bug eaters oatmeal raisin cookie amber, uh, which is from the, the Brewing Network forum, tastes like briny green olives. Ooh. What would cause this flavor? Probable key considerations. One pound of turbinado was dissolved in distilled water and added to fermenter when fermentation began to slow down. Fermenter was initially kept in the basement at a consistent uh, 18 degrees C for 10 days. No tap water was used, store-bought distilled only. I brought the bucket upstairs for a couple days for cleanup. On the second day, the ambient air got up to 78 degrees Fahrenheit, took a bound back downstairs immediately once I got at home. Uh, I love the, the mix of <laughs> yeah. C and F. And uh, let's see, there seems to be a lack of information on the net about this particular flavor. Uh, he, he's uh, learn us good from uh, Chris from Louisville. Uh, so it had briny green olive flavor. I imagine the turbinado would be a source of contamination if he only dissolved it in water and added it to the fermenter you know, after the boil. Um, 
I mean, there could be, you know, uh, contamination on the sugar that could go in, even though post-fermentation alcohol should prevent uh, bacterial contamination and that sort of a green olive funk, if funk it is. I don't know. But briny. Briny. That's odd. That is odd. Yeah. And, you know, depending on the, maybe, maybe salt was in the sugar. Yeah. Maybe it was a lump of sea salt instead of turbinado. <laughs> 18 degrees C is, according to my phone anyway, 64 F. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty low. Right. Um, you know, if it was lower, I would suggest maybe it was some sulfur compounds that had mm-hmm. kind of uh, uh, been thrown off by the yeast, you know, as they get stressed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the reality is uh, the vast majority of flavors that are in a beer come from fermentation of some sort or, you know, uh, bacterial action or something that, uh, you know, is coming uh, from that. So I would look towards that, like uh, John's saying, you know, it could be, you know, some sort of uh, contamination uh, from that process. Anything that's going into your beer, there's hot side and cold side. You really need to be very careful about what's in there, cold side. Yeah. Um, anything that gets hot and boiled, all that, yeah, it could be, you know, you can boil a turd and, well, it still tastes like a turd, but, um, you know, you could you pull off the bacteria and all that. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're, if you're adding anything, you know, for example, um, and he may have heated up the distilled water, uh, before he, you know, to dissolve the turbinado, cooled it down properly and then added it. Um, that might be okay. Uh, but you know, generally that, or, you know, it can be uh, mold or something like that. Um, I would, I would just kind of look towards those, uh, possibilities. Got a question from the chat. Uh, Jonathan Sheehan asks about um, boiling temperatures. Mm-hmm. He says that he, he had a storm roll through the drop the pressure to below sea, sea level, dropped mm-hmm. his boiling temperature. So the digital controller wouldn't roll over to the set boiling temperature. Not sure what he means there. But I guess the net effect is, uh, you know, he wasn't boiling at 212. Mm-hmm. Um and he asked, do you have your controllers or boil timers set for below boiling temps? Well, in my case, I'm at 2,000 feet. So my boiling temperature is about 205. Um, and I think I just compensate for that with just a little more hops. I'm still boiling for an hour. Boiling. Compensating. Uh-huh. Yeah. Based on you know the action of the boil. Uh, yeah. No, I, you know, I think in a way too much is put on this and worrying about this because uh, it's really, you know, yes, temperature does play a part in it. But once you get past a certain temperature, you know, isomerization happens, all that. And a lot of the pro- the the value of the boil is the motion of the bubbles coming up and stirring the ingredients that you have in the, in the kettle. Uh, 
So it's that motion that's important. Uh, and then, you know, just general temperature past a certain point. Uh, most of the stuff that happens like SMM being, uh, you know, uh, uh, converted. It's volatile. To, you know, isomerization of, uh, you know, the hot mouth acids, uh, coagulation of proteins and, uh, you know, the, the, the work concentration still happens, uh, because you're, you're still blowing off the vapor. So I don't think it's quite as critical as people have made it, uh, out to be. So I, I'm not sure that, you know, I would worry that much. Um, I don't know. Fal, have you ever done any brewing at uh, high altitudes or anything like that and had to adjust for it? I'm a sea level kind of guy. Uh, so, uh, but I do know, you know, all the books you read talk about a vigorous boil. So I think, you know, one of your points is a good one. There has to be movement in your boil. Um, I know that for a long time, we talked about uh, 10% evaporation uh, per hour. And that, that's pretty high. That used to kind of be the standard. I think now 10% evaporation over a 90-minute period of time is a little more acceptable. So I, you know, you really have to work hard to get a lot more than 10% per hour. Um, so I don't think that's an issue. It just would be hard to achieve. You're wasting uh, fuel. And if you go a lot below that, if you're if you're getting like 5% over your 90 minutes. I think that's probably an insufficiently vigorous boil. Um, so we, you know, at our brewery, we try and shoot for 10%, you know, like you said, you want to isomerize the hops, you want to sterilize the wort. And, you know, you also want to get colloidal stability. If you have an insufficient boil, you're not really getting those proteins to bond together. Uh, nowadays with hazy IPAs and things, maybe people don't care about that as much anymore, but I would contend uh, that if you're not getting a proper boil and you're not getting those uh, proteins and things to fall out, that that carries over into a flavor that you have in your beer later. Um, I contend that any hazy IPA that you love, if you went out and filtered it, it'd probably be even more lovable. But not everybody <laughs> believes that. But it definitely the haziness of a beer carries a flavor component with it. So you, know, you need to get a good boil, you need a sufficient boil. Agreed. Agreed. All right. Let's see. Uh, Andre, uh, he says, hello, Jay-Z and John. <laughs> I'm at work, which prohibits me from running the chat software. Otherwise, I would be in the chat asking this. Is it possible to mash grain for too long? I'm planning on doing a double brew day, starting my second mash as the first mash batch is boiling given that the first mash will still be hot and wet uh, when I'm ready to start my second mash. And given the fact that I'm a lazy brewer, I wasn't planning on completely emptying my mash ton of the first batch's grains before adding the second batch's grist. Hmm. I'll scoop out some of the spent grain, but not all. Can this negatively impact the quality of my second batch? Hmm. He uses a 15-gallon insulated stainless steel kettle as his mash tun. He continuously recirculates during the mash. Uh, he realizes that the water in the wort retained in the leftover grains in the mash tun will affect my water calculations, but I believe I can deal with that. Besides, I brew by the seat of my pants. It'll be fun to deal with this on the fly. No, really, it will be. 
uh, <laughs> thanks, gents, Andre. Uh, so what he's talking about doing is um, he doesn't want to clean out his mash tun. He's just going to scoop some out, throw more grain on top, add some more water, and go again uh, to save himself some time. So I'm imagining, let's say, that half of the previous mash is still in there. I mean, the only thing I can think of is, you know, if, if it wasn't left for a long time where it's started, the bacteria started to break down, right. stinky, uh, I, I would think that, you know, the only thing you're dealing with is maybe, you know, some additional tannin extraction. But if the pH is right, that'll mitigate that. Um, you probably get a little bit more of kind of that protein grainy kind of character um I, I imagine there's some flavor impact but not terrible um but it would be different than if you completely got rid of the mash and i don't know what, what do you guys think i'm 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 not coming up with anything that would i mean i think the your, bacterial your, your database is yeah empty your your search Yep. I think, you know, the, the, the mash spoiling over time is about the worst thing I can think of. Mm -hmm. I I think Jamil's makes a good point. You might pick up a little more grain in this, but if you're talking about, Mm -hmm. you know, a quarter of your previous mash still left in there, I wouldn't worry about it. And if you're talking about dumping it right in afterwards, like within an hour or two, I don't think I'd worry about that either. You know, if, if you're talking about six hours later or 12 hours later, that that right. seems like a problem. But right. Right. And, you know, anybody doing this and thinking they need to completely clean their mash ton of all, you know, uh, every last bit of grain, I wouldn't worry about it. I would just, you know, dump it and go, you know, yeah. if there's a little bit left over, a little bit left over, nobody's going to notice. All right, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll have more of your questions right after this. Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. I want to tell you about my good friends, uh, Josh and RJ up in uh, Sparks, Nevada. Brew Chatter, brewchatter.com. Great folks. I'll tell you, if you uh, enjoy this uh, Q&A, you can Q&A those guys at uh, Brew Chatter. They're fantastic. They uh, know a lot about brewing, and they're just wonderful guys that uh, are happy to answer your questions about anything brewing-related. And I'll tell you this, if they have a question they can't answer, they could ask me, they could pass it my way. And then when I don't know the answer, I'll pass it to John or foul or anyone. friends. Eventually we'll figure out the, we'll figure out the answer. We'll give you an answer one way or another. Uh, but check out those guys at brewchatter.com. Good guys. Great, great, uh, brew store, uh, lots of great ingredients and, uh, lots of knowledge. So check them out. All right, uh, we're answering questions that have been submitted to uh, Bruce Strong at thebrewingnetwork.com. I've got one in the chat here. Okay. 
Um, he says he's looking and building the keyser for his corny kegs. Mm. What are our thoughts on tubing length diameter uh, and, and diameter, um, CO2 pressure and tap hardware for consistently good pours across all beer styles? Also, he notes that he lives about 25 miles outside of Boston with no Boston accent. But I would he is you would agree that it would be a tough code for non-locals to break. So I I adore Boston. <laughs> the people there. It's just a fantastic place. Uh, yeah, so uh, there's uh, calculations. The the Brewers Association actually put out a draft uh uh, manual uh, fouls nodding. It's actually quite good. It talks about the materials of the lines. It talks about, you know, uh, resistance in different types of materials. It talks about the diameter materials. And really, it's a mathematical thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, the pressure of the beer, the temperature that you, you, you're holding the beer at, the pressure that you need in order to get the volumes of CO2. And then you know, your, your service needs to have enough restriction in it so that it doesn't break out before it hits the handle. If you put too much restriction, you'll get a very slow pour. But if you, um, <clears throat> but, um, you know, in between too much restriction, so it isn't pouring and too little restriction where it's foaming, there's a lot of slop in there. So you just do this calculation, add like another couple of feet to your line, you're good to go. So those lines may be really tiny, like, uh, you know, three sixteenths of an inch or eighth inch, uh, or they may be big and chubby, uh, but it all has a little bit of restriction and you need enough restriction, uh, to ensure that it's pouring properly. So, um, can't really answer the question unless there's specifics as to uh, pressures, temperatures, uh, the height of the keg versus the faucet makes a difference for every three feet. It's a half PSI of restriction, I think, uh, something like that. And then it also works in reverse. So, uh, you know, check it out. There's lots of good information on, on the web. I think uh, Micromatic even has, uh, it, it's just a calculation. And so um, uh, if you want shorter lines, you use thinner uh, diameters, ID. Um, and certain materials have less restriction or more restriction, you know, so uh, like vinyl will be more restriction. And some of those like glass line tubes have almost zero restriction uh so you kind of add all those up to get an uh, you know at least your your psi of restriction there and then uh it just pours beautifully it's a it's a it's a it's a mathematical thing i don't know how to pronounce his name b j a r t e jart the jart that Jart. Alverson, Jart, Jart, am, am I pronouncing it? Right? <clears throat> He's from Norway. He says, hi there. I wonder why there are so few commercial breweries top cropping through a top manway in a conical tank. We all know from the yeast book that uh, the most healthy yeast is on the top when the beer is fermenting. More generations are possible with top cropping. Top cropping gives faster turnaround. So except that it sucks to harvest from a ladder, <laughs> the 
the need for a positive displacement pump and a strict sanitation regime. Why would you not top crop in a commercial setting? Cheers. Love the show. Foul. Why are you not top cropping? What's the matter with you? Well, um, there's a whole lot of reasons to top crop. Um, First of all, I think you can train your yeast, your, even your top fermenting uh, ale yeast uh, to work off, you know, be cropped from the bottom. I think that's, that's certainly one issue. Secondly, uh, depending on your brewery, some of the tanks are quite high. Um, it would involve putting a catwalk up there. Uh, the third reason would be that it'd be very difficult uh, depending on how you would crop. Um, I went to Sam Smith's where they use Yorkshire uh, slate squares and they top crop with a vacuum and vacuum the top, you know, the yeast off the top. And that was way cool. And we all know they make great beer. So clearly it can be done, but that's an expense, you know, to buy a sanitary vacuum system that you can crop with would uh, be an added expense. So between the danger, the expense and the difficulty, um, I suspect most craft brewers aren't going to do it. Although I kind of like the idea. Now, hold on, hold, 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 hold on right here. Now, now, how did you get into Sam Smith's? They won't, they won't let anybody in. Well, you know, I used to work for Merchant Devin and, uh, um, working with Charles Finkel has its perks. Uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. Charles knows everybody in in the brewing industry it seems and since we were the importers merchant devin was the importer for sam smith uh we went out there uh he used to go i think it was every other year he'd be out there and he'd take some of the crew with him and i was out there a couple times and we got a nice tour of the brewery there um they they make amazing beer and they still do it in yorkshire slate squares so I've been trying to get in there for forever. And I, I I've had people who's like, yeah, I know the family. Uh, I've, I've stayed in the apartments there at the brewery. Uh, I'll get you in no problem. And they reach out and they're just like, no, they don't, they don't want anybody who's a brewer from anywhere coming by. It's like, I wouldn't, I, I would, I just want to, you know, grok the fullness of, of being there. You know, I don't, I don't want to, uh, I don't, you know, I, I, steal their technology. Yeah. I wouldn't steal the technology. I, I just want to uh, respect it. I, I, I just, uh, yeah. Have, a, have, you ever, have you gone on the brewery tour? Uh, no. Even those are hard to get. Because yeah. I did it once, and before I worked for Merchant Devin, I went, you know, I wanted to go there. I went in and said, Do you guys do tours? And they said, No, don't do tours. Right. No, they're not you know? doing tours. And yeah. I, you know, went over and sat down, and a guy at the, at, you know, that I sat down by said, Hey, mate, you know, we're doing a tour, and our company, because they would give companies tours, but not individuals. He said, you can come with us. Just pretend you work for us. So I got to go on a brewery tour there, which you didn't get to see the whole thing. They mostly focused on the barrels that they were rolling around in the horses. But still, it was cool. And I couldn't have done it if I didn't happen to bump into this guy who already had a prearranged company (laughs) tour. So they they don't like to show people stuff. 
I'll, I'll tell you, one of the, the hard tours to get is also Harvey's. Now, they, uh, I was able to get one because a friend of mine used to be a brewer at Harvey's. And he's like, I'll get you in, you know, because otherwise I, I reached out and they're just like, we don't do tours anymore. They had such a list of people wanting tours. They, they just couldn't fill the, the demand for tours and decided hey, we, we need to stop. So they stopped, but he got me in. And that place, it's like brewing 500 years ago. And it's all, you know, uh, open, open squares. They've got, you know, uh, but I think it's just amazing beer. Their, their, uh, their, their best bitter, I think, is my favorite beer in the world. I really do. It's so good. Um, and uh, during that tour, they uh, were taking us around and then they dropped us in the quality control room. They're just like, I, I, I've got a meeting I'm going to get to, but you guys are, are good here for like an hour or so. And we're like, yeah, they're like, you know how to pour beer. We're like, of course. So we just enjoying all the little casks and stuff in their quality control. Room. Just amazing. Such great people. Oh, I, I, I love that. But yeah, I, I can't get to Sam Smith's. I don't know. Yeah. The Smith family, they're unusual folks, um, to say <laughs> the least. Uh, when we went to visit them, Charles said to me, okay, no matter what, you know, Humphrey Smith is the guy who owns it. He said, no matter what, don't comment on anything that Humphrey says or does or is wearing or any of this. Don't, don't say anything. I was like, okay, what do you mean? So we get in the van and these guys are, you know, he's a multimillionaire. Uh, so we get in this van, we're driving out to see a brewery that they bought uh, back in the seventies that they haven't used since the seventies. They were working on a, a program to start doing, you know, some, some collaboration with a, a Belgian brewery. And we're driving along in the van and he, you know, sits down and puts his foot up and there's a hole in his shoe and I can see newsprint through the hole. I'm like, uh, what? And then as I look closer, his suit cuffs are frayed because mm -hmm. you know, he hasn't bought a new suit in decades. And that sounds like my like kind of guy. A stain on his shirt. And I just thought, this huh? guy is awesome. A real character. But they are very secretive. Oh, interesting. I tell you, I, I, I love, you know, England and going over and, and doing stuff. I went to uh, Fawcett's. James Fawcett just, you know, it just it took like three hours out of his day to, uh, he was like, where, you know, what do you want to see? I'm like, I want to see everything. And God bless him. He took me to every part of everything they do. He's like, from where they originally, you know, this is what we were doing a hundred years ago. And here's what we, our modern stuff from the sixties, you know, and he walked around, he took me on the floor maltings to, uh, you know, check out malts and uh, it's just, just amazing. Uh, you know, what, what wonderful, uh, folks there, uh, uh especially, uh, Mr. Fawcett himself taking, taking the time to do that top cropping. And uh, I've got friends over there. They do a lot of top cropping and uh, yeah, I, I believe, you know, top cropping is great. And I do think, uh, so one of the things is, uh, Fuller's, uh, when they switch, they put in their, uh, their conical cylinder, conical fermenters, uh, at one point, um, and got rid of their squares and their double drop, uh, the yeast started 
you know, learns to you know, drop to the bottom. And really it learns because you're pulling the yeast from the bottom. And so it's kind of a self-fulfilling thing. The yeast starts, you know, that you're pulling is the yeast that dropped to the bottom. So the next generations are yeast. It very quickly will, will shift. Um, I do think you get a different character though. I think the yeast that top crops, uh, it's more oxygen hungry and picks up more oxygen and tends to produce a different flavor. So especially in British beers, I think that that can be a, a real positive. I'm not sure it's needed in something like you're trying to do a clean, uh, you know, uh, American style beer, then, you know, bottom cropping is probably the better choice there. Um, it just depends on the, 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 the beer you're trying to produce and how you treat the yeast is going to develop a different flavor one way or another. Uh, so, uh, you know, it can have an impact. Top cropping is difficult though. Like Fal's saying, tanks can be really tall. The openings, the, you know, those ports on the top of most American tanks are tiny. They're not like manways. They're, you know, six, eight inches. And you can open those up and you could, you know, insert a vacuum uh, pipe and, you know, vacuum up some yeast from that. Um, but, uh, Unless you're trying to make a beer that needs top cropping, I, I don't know. Um, home brewing, easy enough, and smaller scale uh, commercial brewing, yeah, I would, I would uh, definitely check out top cropping. All right, there's the bacteria factor too. You, you, yes. Once you open a tank up, you're opening up to the atmosphere, and that can have a lot of bacteria in it, depending on where you are and what's going on. So, mm -hmm. there you go. All right. Uh, one more short break. When we come back, we'll have one more question right after this. Back to the beer guys that make other beer guys look like wine guys. Brew strong. All right, we're back. Uh, John, any uh, questions in the chat or should I answer Will's question here? Um, go ahead and answer, Wills, because we've run out of chat room questions. There you go. Uh, Will asks, uh, hi, guys. Uh, thank you so much for great information through your writing and podcast. I have a question I have not heard answered before and looking for your perspective. I use a digital refractometer for measuring gravity. However, the readings vary quite a bit depending on how many hop tube particles are floating in the sample. There are syringe filters that can remove them before reading, but I'm wondering if this would then underestimate the true gravity. Any thoughts on this would be great. Thanks in advance, Will. I haven't noticed um, variation in my digital refractometer, which I assume is the little console when you drop just a little one drop on a little window. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, brand escapes me at the moment. Right. Well, you know, it's all, uh, you know, these digital refractometers are based off of, uh, you know, kind of the amount of light that goes through. And I imagine, uh, you know, the more, uh, you know, uh, particulate matter or tube you have in there, uh, it could really affect the reading. Fal, have you played around with the digital refractometers much? We have tried them. Um, I like the analog ones better. And we use them in the brew house because you don't have to temperature adjust them one drop 
you know, temperature adjusts pretty quickly by itself. Mm -hmm. But we don't use them for really accurate readings. We use them for a quick measurement of our gravity as we're running off or during the boil. For any really serious uh, readings, we use a hydrometer. Mm -hmm. um, and even those can be off some. So you got to check them regularly. Uh, make sure that they're, if they're temperature corrected, you use the correction or you get it, the work to the right temperature. Uh, I don't really trust the refractometers for any serious, like exact readings, mm -hmm. um, but they are pretty handy in the brew house that you don't have to cool the sample. Yeah, I'm with you. Same, same thing here. It's, it's nice to, to check things. We actually use one for checking our, uh, our glycol concentration uh, yeah. you know, once a month. Uh, we check that and the pH, you know, monthly and uh, record that just, uh, to watch, watch our glycol. But uh, as far as, you know, brewery readings, uh, it's all hydrometers. Um, just, just more accurate than the refractometers. Refractometers are great. They're quick. Yeah. Like you're saying, but uh, uh, you know, there you go. All right. That's all we have time for today. Thank you so much, Fal, for, for joining us. Yeah, really appreciate it. A pleasure to see you and uh, chat with you. Thank uh, you for having me. Certainly, uh, I enjoyed it. I wish we could do it in person. Love to see you guys. So if you're out there, anybody who's out there in the brewing world, if you're coming this way, you're coming up to Northern California, please come in and visit, especially you two. Uh, I would love to have a beer. And Jamil, let's do a collaboration. Yes. And when I, I before uh, we started, I was telling Fowl, you know, one of the greatest memories I have is going to Anderson Valley Brewing Company and, and hanging out with Fowl. And, you know, he just makes me feel uh, so good about myself as a person. Just a very gentle soul and, you know, asks you questions that make you feel like you actually matter. And, uh, it's just, just, just really, it's a really wonderful experience. Yeah. Great beer. It's a beautiful place. It's, it's, it's cool. It's unusual. And he's, he's just a, a really nice human being. So, uh, one of my, one of my favorite stops ever that I, uh, that I remember. So come up and visit or yeah. I may have to come, come up down and there. collab brew. Yeah. Yep. Very good. There you go. Do it. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thank you uh, for listening. Thank you to our sponsors. Make sure you check them out. Uh, BlickmanEngineering.com. Uh, send them an email, feedback at BlickmanEngineering.com. And, and those guys at uh, Brew Chatter, check them out, BrewChatter.com. Good folks. All those, you know, they're all just putting money up so you, uh, you get the stuff for free. So check them out. Until then, everybody, brew strong. 